Good morning. If you have your Bibles, uh, please turn to the book of First Timothy, chapter one. First Timothy, chapter one. Uh, I think I'll just start off by saying Merry Christmas. Okay, we we got another Merry. We got another Christmas in the books. We are. Uh, we made it, and we're on to New Year's. Happy New Year. Uh, it's New Year's Eve today, uh, and excuse me, tonight. And I really hope that your celebrations are filled with toasted ravioli and buffalo chicken dip as you rein in the New Year. Yeah, I see some fist bumps there, yeah. You know, it seems like this is the time of year whenever hope and change are big topics for us. Um, seems like we, we always want to look forward to a better tomorrow this time of year. Many of us may be in the habit of, of making New Year's resolutions. Uh, we want to better ourselves. We want to be happier. We want to live more fulfilling lives. And so we, we say things like, I'm going to resolve to lose weight in the new year. Perhaps that's because of all the toasted ravioli and buffalo chicken dip. Perhaps. Uh, perhaps we're, we're wanting to get out of debt because we purchased so much toasted ravioli and buffalo chicken dip. I don't know, maybe. Uh, you know, sometimes we, we resolve to be kinder people. We resolve to be more generous, more philanthropic to our community. And maybe even some of us are uh, resolving to read the Bible every day or, or to, to pray more diligently in our spiritual lives. And, you know, we, we make these resolutions, right? The, re the resolution is there for a reason. It's because we, we have a longing in our hearts and a, there's a reality that there's something missing, that there's, there's something more that we want for ourselves than what we currently have. We have these, these, these missed expectations from the year we just ended, and we want to correct the error for next year. We want something better for ourselves. See, these longings actually point to the reality that we live in a world that we want to be better. We live in a world that uh, the world around us, the lives that we share, even our own hearts, are not the way that they're supposed to be, that there's something more. Whatever that is for you, there's something more that you're longing for. There's something missing. I mean, it's easy to see. I mean, all you have to do is, is just look up from your own life and look at the world around you, right? You just have to turn on the news, you have to pick up your phone, and you will notice that there is a world out there that is lacking. There's a situation out there that is, is, is dire, it's, it's complex, it feels overwhelming, right? We see this world filled with hatred and fear and anxiety and hardship and trouble, and, and it's, it's overwhelming, Whenever you look at what's going on out there and you try to understand the gravity and the complexity of it, and you long for change, you long for something to be different, you long for someone to fix the problem. But if you're honest with yourself, it's, it's here too. It's not just out there in the world, it's in your own life you have that same sense of overwhelming complexity and gravity, things that you want to be different but seem like they never will be. 
Maybe this morning you're recovering from Christmas, from time with extended family or, or difficult relational tensions that year after year they just never seem to go away. Maybe this morning you're grieving a new loss, or perhaps you're remembering an old loss. And you're wondering, how can I be joyful and happy this season whenever all I feel is sadness and sorrow because they're not with us anymore? Perhaps you're hoping for change in your relationship with a spouse or a child or or even a parent because these relationships get into ruts and you just want to break out of the same dance that you do year after year and visit after visit. You want to rekindle affection and love and friendship with these people, but it just never seems to go the way that you want it to. Maybe some of you are feeling lost and uncertain about the future. You're not sure where the Lord is taking you. You're not sure what the next step is in your life, and you just want direction and guidance. Or maybe you've just noticed unhealth. Now, maybe that's physical health, maybe that's emotional, maybe that's spiritual health. Maybe you've just noticed this this continual trial of, of trying to do better in some area of your life, and it seems like nothing you do to change ever seems to work. And that can become overwhelming, the complexity and the gravity before you of that situation. And I feel like it becomes overwhelming specifically because it seems like we've done this before, haven't we? Right? We're, we're here to celebrate the, the, the ringing of the new year of 2024, but 2023, we probably did the same thing. Then 2022, 2021, so on and so forth. Seems that every year we often do the same thing. We get to the end of a long year, we're tired, we're run down. We look at our failures, we look at our shortcomings, we look at the world around us, we look at our own lives, and what do we do? Well, we just try to gear up for the next year. We often believe that the best hope we have is that we get to say goodbye to the past and try again. And because we do this every year, one of the best kept secrets is we know that this doesn't work. Now maybe it does for a bit. I mean, we see marginal success in certain areas of our lives, but it often falls short, and so we often give up into despair. And sometimes, whenever we're despairing and life seems too hopeless and we feel defeated and we're trying and we're trying and we're trying but it doesn't work, we try a different strategy and we choose not to care. We try to forget our problems. We say, you know, I've tried, and I've tried, and it's not worked, so maybe if I stop trying, it'll work. Maybe if I do nothing, then my problems will go away, so maybe I should just enjoy the party. Bring on the toasted rav, right? Denial. Denial's a powerful drug, and it works until it doesn't. 
Because at some point, the party ends. At some point, the laughter fades and the heartburn sets in, right? And you go back to your life, right? The effect of denial loses its grasp on us, and we're thrust back into the reality of our daily existence. Our missed expectations and longings are still there. I mean, yeah, we forgot them for a while, but they're still there. And they leave us hoping for more. Friends, whether you're here this morning and you find yourself in a place of despair or a place of denial, it's true that we are all longing for more. We are all looking for hope. Well, instead of despair or denial, the Bible offers us something different. And we often hear it this time of year in the songs that we sing. We sang several of them this morning. And oftentimes the songs we sing, they don't, here in church even, we, we, they don't shy away from the hate or the fear or the anxiety or the hardship of the world. They're honest about that. They don't, even, they don't even shy away from the shortcomings of our own lives, the failures that we have endured, uh, and uh, the way our hearts are broken. But instead, instead of just telling us, try again, or instead of just encouraging us to simply forget our problems, these, problems, or these songs respond by proclaiming the birth of Jesus. These songs tell us, you know, things like in O Holy Night, where long lay the world in sin and error pining. And then there's a moment where there's a thrill of hope. And a weary world rejoices because Christ is born. We sing about the, the herald angels singing, proclaiming the birth of Jesus. We sing about bells ringing on Christmas Day to declare peace on earth and goodwill toward men because of the birth of Jesus. We sing joy to the world, the Lord is come because Jesus is born. These songs and, and many like them declare that because Christ has come, because Jesus is born, we have hope. And we must live in response to that hope. So what is it? What is it about this little baby born in Bethlehem that makes him the hope of the world? Why is it that Christians across the globe have for generations oriented their entire lives around this baby? Our passage here in 1 Timothy this morning, uh, the Apostle Paul tells us. He answers the question for us. He gives us the reason that Jesus is the hope of the world. In verse 15, he says it like this. He says that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So let's listen to the words of the Apostle Paul and see what, what implications this reality has for us. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 12. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, uh, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed, with, overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. 
But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of all ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give you this time this morning as we look at your word and the glory of the gospel the glory of Christ, the Savior born in Bethlehem. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to understand your word this morning. May your Holy Spirit dwell with us richly. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. In this passage, Paul not only proclaims the hope that we cling to, but he also models how to live in that hope. So let's look first at how Paul proclaims the hope that we cling to. Verse 15, you know, we've already read it this morning, but it is the summary of our hope. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul finds this truth so critical, it's so important to him that he actually calls it out. He calls out how important this reality is. He says this saying is trustworthy and it's deserving of full acceptance. You know, it's, it's sort of like whenever you're trying to talk to the kids sometimes, right? And, and parents, you know, what do you do? right? Hey, hey, you know, look me in the eyes, right? Hey, are you listening, right? Both ears, right? Are you listening? You, are your eyes on me? Okay. Don't jump on the couch, right? D- don't jump on the, are you, are you listening? Right. Okay. What did I say? Right. Don't jump. No, you may not run on the couch, Right. You may not walk on the couch. You may not hop on the couch. You may not, right? We, we do this, right? Like where we want to call out something that is so important. It's, it's as if we're saying, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Don't jump on the couch. And that's what Paul's doing here. It's so central to what he's trying to get across that he calls it out. And why does he do this? Why does Paul call out this truth with such importance? Well, simply put, because it's the core of Christianity. I mean, this is like the central truth. This is the whole enchilada of what Christianity is about. This is why we call it the gospel, right? It's good news. This is, this is what the angels are declaring, good news. Christ is born because Christ came to save sinners. We are sinners saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. We believe that God created this good world for humans to enjoy and to be with him, but our first parents rebelled against God, and with that rebellion brought sin into the world, and that sin altered everything about our relationship with God. It separated us from him, and now we're stuck there. We are stuck in our sin, and we try, and we try to get out of that sin, but we can't. Some of us try by uh, focusing on becoming great and important, and, and so we push for success and notoriety in our lives, but we're stuck. Some of us focus on being uh, as good of people as possible, and we live by ethical and moral standards, and we, we try to be generous and philanthropic with our time and our gifts and our money, uh, but, but it doesn't actually fulfill us. Sometimes, you know, some of us, we we want to escape our problems, right? We live in that place of denial, and so we misuse and abuse the world that God has given us so that we can numb our pain, and we can find comfort if we can't find a solution. But at the end of the day, these are all dead ends for us. We try to get out, 
and we can't. And, and actually, oftentimes, we find ourselves even more stuck than when we started. The Bible, is, that's not a surprise to the Bible. The Bible actually tells us there's actually nothing you can do. You are hopeless. You are without hope in your sin. There's no way for you to get out by yourself. But God, God has done what you cannot. God is the one who gives us hope. God sends his son Jesus to die on the cross and to pay the cost of freeing us from our sin. He, he dies on the cross, and then three days later, he rises from the grave, and he declares victory. He declares victory over sin and also over death. And he declares that, that if you submit yourself to him as king, the rightful king and ruler of this world, your deepest hopes, your deepest longings will be fulfilled. Not because he gives you everything that your heart desires, but instead because you will be in his presence forever. Your heart will be at rest with him. And that problem of sin, you'll be freed from it forever. This is the gospel story. This is what Christians proclaim and believe, and we see it throughout the entire Bible. We see it in, in Jesus' ministry. He, he chooses to spend time with sinners and tax collectors, right? He invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house, and, and he proclaims salvation to him. And, and, and what's funny is, is lives are changed. When Jesus interacts with, with people like tax collectors and sinners, he gives them grace, and then their lives are different. When Jesus tells stories about shepherds who, who go leave the 99 and, and go search for the one sheep that's missing, the one who has wandered away. Whenever Jesus tells stories about uh, a woman who's, who's sweeping her entire house looking for one measly little coin. Paul talks about it in his writings when he writes to the church in Ephesus. He says, we were dead we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love that he has for us, even while we were dead, he made us alive. He made us alive together with Christ, and this is by grace. You didn't do it. It is a gift from God. Later, when Paul writes to the church in Rome, he tells them that God shows his love for you in that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. This is the hope that Paul proclaims. Jesus Christ came into the world to give abundant mercy and grace to sinners who are in desperate need of hope, and that's you. But Paul does more than simply just proclaim it. He models a life that has been changed by it. I mean, notice the pronouns here in, in these verses. He says, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. I am the foremost of sinners, and I received mercy. Paul uses his own story for the purpose of proclaiming the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He, this isn't theory for him. This isn't just some theology textbook for him. This is his life. His life is changed because of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see it in, in the testimony of the Bible, in, in the book of Acts, in the book of Galatians, and other places. Paul talks about 
We see, we read about Paul's persecution of the church. We read about uh, the way that he imprisoned Christians and the way that he was even complicit in murder. But the grace of Jesus Christ worked in his heart and it changed his life. He's different now. He's so different that he can actually say that he was formerly a persecutor of the church. It means he doesn't do it anymore. And he can talk about it without shame. And he can talk about it without embarrassment because he's forgiven. He's received grace. In fact, he can be so bold as to call himself the foremost of sinners. Now, I'm not sure if that actually means that he thinks that of all the sinners in the universe, he is number one. I'm, I'm not sure if that's what he means or if he means, you know, like just after he's investigated his life and he's sensitive to his own heart and what's been going on there that he can't imagine anyone else being worse than him. I, I'm not sure. But what I do know is, is that Paul doesn't shy away from or try to minimize his sin. He doesn't rationalize it. He doesn't play it down. He doesn't qualify it. He doesn't get defensive. He doesn't shift blame. He says, I'm a sinner. And he's, I'm not a kind of, sort of, maybe sinner. I'm not a from a certain point of view sinner. I'm a sinner. In fact, I'm the foremost of sinners. But because of the mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ, because of Jesus' finished work on the cross to atone for sin and to forgive him, because of the work, uh, the continual work of the Holy Spirit in his heart and life, Paul can lift his head. He's not racked with shame or embarrassment or despair uh, because of his sin. He has joy in his heart because he is forgiven. He is a sinner saved by grace. Friends, this is so hard to do. It's even, I mean, it's been an area of struggle for me throughout my life. To believe that in spite of my sin, in spite of my failures, in spite of my shortcomings, in spite of all the ways that I screw up, that Jesus looks at me and embraces me with love and compassion. To believe that, that his death on the cross has already paid for all of my failures, even the ones that I haven't done yet. To believe that, that, that Jesus' mercy is, is more powerful than any sin that I could ever muster. Or, or that, that his love isn't conditional. It's not dependent on how well I've behaved today. He loves me because he loves me. And yet that's the gospel that's why we're here. We believe that Christ is at his best when we are at our worst. His very name describes his unique purpose in the world. The angel told Joseph, they shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's his job. We believe that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We believe that Jesus' death on the cross was the final victory over sin and death. And when Jesus is on the cross and he says, it is finished, we believe he means it. We believe that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord.
do you know this love of God? You know, it's yours if you want it. Jesus freely offers it to you today. I'm just going to be honest as one who has been affected by it. There is nothing quite like it in all of the world. There's nothing else that will satisfy you. There's nothing else that will fulfill you. In fact, it's what you were made for, was to be loved by God. Only the grace of God will make sense of your longings and bring true and lasting hope to your life. Do you know this love of God? Has it changed the way that you view the world around you? Do you feel your heart softening towards those in your life? You know, whenever you're walking around the mall, does anybody still walk around the mall? You know, whenever you're, you're on the phone with customer service, whenever you're stuck in traffic, who do you see? Do you see frustrating and idiotic people who are selfish and obstinate? Or do you see souls in need of hope? Only the grace of God can give us eyes to see the needs around us because it reminds us of the needs that we had and that Christ fulfilled and gave to us through his grace. And eyes filled with grace to see a world around us that is in need of hope is exactly what Paul was given. Look at verse 16. Paul says, I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. In other words, Paul is saying, Paul's salvation was not just for Paul. His life his sin, his need for a Savior, and God's grace to him show the watching world the wonder and the beauty and the glory and the majesty of Christ. And Paul proclaims the glory of Christ by simply sharing about his life. He says, look, here's the way that sin was a work in my life. And here's the way that God met me in my sin with his grace. What if we followed Paul's model here? What if instead of building up arguments and trying to defeat the objections of, of naysayers, you know, what if you, whenever you're given the opportunity, you share your life with someone? You share your story. You, you, you talk about how has sin been at work in my life? What are the ways that I was trying to solve my own sin problem without God? And how has God, through the grace of Jesus Christ, met me? What is, what is different about me because of Jesus? Where do I find my hope? Where in your life have you come face to face with the fact that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners? A sinner like you. And you know, as you share your story, as you begin to talk about that with others, you're going to get an opportunity to extend an invitation and you can say something like, you know, Jesus Christ came into the world to save someone like me. And if he can save someone like me, he can save someone like you. But this is a task that requires patience. Paul himself says in verse 16 that Christ was displaying his, displaying his perfect patience in Paul's life. You know, he was patient with Paul whenever he was persecuting the church and attacking Christians. He was patient with Paul as he 
had a conversion, but then was, went out into the wilderness to learn and mature. And that was almost 20 years of his life. And this was before he went on his missionary journeys. God didn't give up on Paul. He didn't consider him too far gone. And, and the same's true for you. you know, maybe you're here this morning and, and you're on this walk with Jesus, but you're just really not sure if you're making progress. Well, Jesus is patient with you. He is displaying his perfect patience with you. He's patient with you through all of the twists and the turns and the setbacks of your lives. He's patient with you whenever you're obstinate to what he's doing or you're oblivious to what he's doing. He's patient with you whenever you're stumbling and you're trying to do the right thing and you just can't seem to get up. He's patient with you whenever you're uncertain to what the right thing to do even is. Jesus displays his perfect patience in each of us as we stumble along the path and follow him. And he calls us to be patient with one another. And then he gives us a place to do that. And that's right here. It's the church. Author and pastor Ray Ortland calls the church a place of gospel plus safety plus time. He writes, the family of God is where people should find lots of gospel, lots of safety, and lots of time. In other words, the people in our churches need multiple exposures to the happy news of the gospel from one end of the Bible to the other. They need the safety of non-accusing sympathy so that they could admit their problems honestly, and they need enough time to rethink their lives at a deep level because people are complex and changing is not easy. We must be patient with one another. But being patient with one another as we stumble along our lives, it's, it's, it's more than just wanting, wanting to wait around until they you know, figure it out, right? It's actually embodying the gospel. We're imitating Christ and his patience toward us as we patiently bear with the failings of one another. When we confess our faults and our failures and we forgive one another, we're loving one another as Christ loved us. We show grace when we are offended and hurt by others because we've been there too. We have been the one offending others and we received grace. We count others as more significant than ourselves and become servants because Christ came not to be served but to serve. And we do all of this not just because it's a good thing to do, even though it is, but because this is what we have received from Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." As we celebrate the birth of Christ and the coming of the Messiah this Christmas season, we can never forget that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Christmas gives way to Good Friday. Good Friday gives way to Easter Sunday. His birth leads to his death. His death leads to his resurrection. And that's hope for the weary world. I mean, it's no wonder that at the end of this passage, Paul ends with an exclamation of praise to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, 
We stand in awe of what you have accomplished through your son Jesus and this work of, of, of gracious wonder that this, this babe born in Bethlehem, this story that's been told for thousands of years and culminates in the birth of your son leads to hope for a whole world. Father, may we, may we bring that hope into our lives and hearts and may we share that hope with a world who is desperately in need of it. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.